0: This week on the science of politics, why governments give away business incentives that increase inequality. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Amazon's headquarters decisions are drawing attention to economic incentive programs designed to bring businesses and jobs to states and localities. And local opposition in New York is raising their role in rising inequality. Why do states and localities continue to offer them despite research showing they're ineffective? This week I talked to Nathan Jensen of the University of Texas about his new Cambridge book with Edmund Molesky, Incentives to Pander How Politicians Use Corporate Welfare for Political Gain. He finds that voters reward politicians who offer even ineffective incentives, and so they keep on offering bigger checks. I also talked to Cynthia Rogers of the University of Oklahoma about her new review of regional studies article with Jia Wang and Stephen Ellis, Income Inequality and Economic Development Incentives in the U.S. States. She finds that state incentives increase economic inequality, but they remain an ever-popular tool. Both say they're building on a broader research literature that does not find many successful incentives.
1: The biggest limitation of some of our work is that, uh, you know, we are just reinforcing the conventional wisdom on the economic impact of these programs i think most research shows that incentives aren't particularly effective they're largely going to companies that are already coming or already expanding so that part you know we do some of that research in our book and honestly we're just we're not differentiating ourselves on that dimension what we're taking is you know Assuming politicians know this, why would they still use these these programs? So we, we are very much accepting the conventional wisdom and extending. We provided some alternative tests in our in our book and in a series of papers. But yeah, these things don't work. The question is, why use them?
2: There's this huge disjoint between those who study incentives in the academic literature and those who use incentives, the practitioners who use them as tools, and uh, see them as very valuable tools. So the narrative that incentives are tools is really compelling to those who want to seem business friendly and to be acting to promote economic activity in a state. So attracting a firm has tremendous, like the Amazon headquarters, has really big political capital value there. But the eventual impacts are rarely studied after the fact. And so in a 2000 paper with my co-author, Steve Ellis, so we show that there's this prisoner's dilemma. You're compelled to compete with increasingly generous offers to send a pro-business signal But if everybody does this, the gain from offering incentives is small. It could even be negative in economic terms. So I would say the best summary of the literature would be a statement to the effect that we don't know enough about these to know if they work or even to know how to
0: use them properly. Jensen says voters think they work even when businesses decide for other reasons.
1: If you look at surveys of what the public thinks matters, for firms, and these are anything from taxes, both state income, property taxes. They tend to think different regulations matter. They think policies matter a lot. But if you actually look at the surveys of firms themselves, highways, access to highly skilled workforce, ports, airports, infrastructure seems to matter in human capital a lot more than policies. Where those kind of false beliefs of voters come up, I'm not sure, but at least one potential story is when you hear politicians talk about the investment environment in states and cities, they talk about these policy lovers, right? They talk about not the long-term impact of having invested in infrastructure. They talk about the short-term tax policy uh, that they make. But but it's a it is a striking contrast between the views of the masses and the views of you know firms or elites on these policies. The one thing and you ask, you know, what's the limits to what they're willing to support, the one thing we really find in our surveys is saying that a company got a billion dollars doesn't reduce the amount of support that voters are willing to give these programs. The big change is when voters understand that there's some other cost.
0: And Rogers says you can't just say we only lose the money if they come and bring us more because they're not that important for firm location decisions.
2: That, That is the narrative. Well, everybody offers these, so we need to offer them to be in the game for anybody to be interested in our community. They won't come if they don't. Well, I think the compelling argument is if if you look at the basic location factors that are most important to a firm, the old adage is location, 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 incentives can only make a difference on a margin if all the other factors are equal. And as it turns out, all those other factors aren't equal. How close are you to market demand? How close are you to your supply inputs? What's the cost of energy? What's the labor force like? Those sort of fundamental factors that go into a business decision dominate incentives. So I think the argument, it's, as I said, it's a really nice narrative. Oh, we have to do this. This is what businesses are looking for. But in the end of the day, if you look at what you gain, how much you spend and how much you get in a net, net increase, the papers that look at this carefully just don't find those effects.
0: Jensen got into this line of research after seeing a particularly egregious example. Firms moving back and forth across the Kansas City border with the same employees, but each state claiming they'd brought new jobs.
1: So I started looking into this because I'm a I'm an international relations scholar, studying you know ta- tax competition across countries, and I was doing a series of projects looking at you know again global foreign investment, and I was in St. Louis teaching at Washington University in St. Louis, and I would read the local papers about these firms that just came to Missouri, and it, this was the Kansas City area. And these are firms that literally moved across the border. You know, if you've been to the Kansas City area, you know, you could go for a run and not really know whether you're in Kansas or Missouri. So, you know, it's one metro area, uh, but you get a firm that's moving five, six miles across the border, and that's being counted as new investment, right? So that this company came to Missouri or came to Kansas, whatever direction you're going, and we've generated all these jobs. And and it's the same people, right, working for the company just driving across the Kansas border or driving into into Missouri. So this is where we start and, and this was not new because there was an expose oh, there's an expose in the in the early two thousands that talked about the border war. Then there was an expose in 2012, the New York Times, where they talked about the, the Kansas City border war. Uh, John Oliver talked about the Kansas City border war. I mean, it, so it's a simple story of, you know, forget about, about the big picture of economic development for now. This is just a really smoking gun. We see companies moving, jumping back and forth to reset their economic development incentives for very little real new impact in the metro area.
0: Rogers says politicians know it doesn't work sometimes, but they just don't understand the broader costs.
2: I think everybody knows that there's this game of recruiting businesses and that it has lots of difficulties. It's really hard to win. Even if you win and you succeed in attracting a business, you might end up paying more than the value that business generates. But that's called the winner's curse. And what our research does is it asks a, a different question that hasn't been looked at in the research. And, and that is, does do states that spend more on incentives have worse outcomes in terms of income inequality? And, and there's reasons to think that it would lead to more inequality, particularly if you think that that these sorts of programs aren't effective in generating new economic activity, or if you think that, that the gain in activity doesn't actually trickle down to uh, lower income folks.
0: So let's dig into the new research. First, Jensen noticed that politicians are not at all shy about these incentives.
1: Our project is not about the kind of secret dealings, even though we'll talk about the lack of transparency, but about the really public credit claiming of, of companies' business relations. So, uh, and, and again, this is Think of like a big check and a ribbon-cutting ceremony as opposed to something much more under-the-table under dealings.
0: He says most firms are coming regardless of incentives, hiding their costs.
1: What is much more private, much less transparent, is the actual costs of these programs. And this, I swear this gets to your question, because one of the big costs of these programs is... Most of the research suggests companies are largely already picking a location and then they're minimizing their taxes once they pick those locations. So there's a, there's a great kind of academic survey of 34 different studies. This is Tim Bartik at the Upjohn Institute. And the, and the findings were that between 75% to 98% of companies, we're coming anyways, even without the incentive program. So best case scenario, you know, one out of four companies is actually being swung by these incentives. The other three were coming anyways. I did a study in Texas and I found 85 to 90% of companies were coming anyways a lot of these, it's obvious if to the listeners, they're oil and gas companies, they're pipelines, literally a, a company that can't go elsewhere, and they're receiving incentives. So I, so that's where we kind of reject the idea, oh, you know, they wouldn't have come here anyway, so any additional benefit is positive. That The academic literature just really strikes that down, saying, you know, at best, you know, the best design program, you're maybe swinging one in four.
0: He even asked some of the firms, and many admit they're coming regardless of the incentives.
1: I just asked the firms. I did a survey of the firms that received these incentives and asked these firms, would you have invested without this incentive. And the majority of firms said we would have invested anyways, we h- would have hired the same number of people. So even though we could think that there's biases in this survey, maybe some will say that it was important even if it wasn't. Even taking that at, at face value, we again, we find evidence over and over again that most of these companies were coming anyways. There was a great study in North Carolina where they asked a bunch of firms about incentives and most of the firms that received incentives didn't even know that they received incentives. So the decision makers who made the location choices didn't know, and they probably delegated to their tax people after the fact uh, to get these incentives.
0: The process is based on politics, the need for politicians to get credit and avoid blame
1: there are lots of mechanisms right there could be a mechanism that they think maybe this might work there might be a campaign contribution mechanism but we try our best to isolate you know even if there's no money you know in campaign contributions even if a politician knows this isn't effective is there still a motivation to do it? And we do this in a a number of different ways. One is just a survey experiment. And and again, if your viewers aren't familiar with this, it's essentially a survey where we're giving different potential scenarios and whether or not a firm came with incentives or a a firm came without incentives. And the simple story is when we give these different options, people actually reward a politician more if they attracted a firm with incentives than without. And, and let me just pause for, you know, if there's an economist listening, you would probably think in terms of cost benefit, you prefer to get an, an investment for free, right? You didn't pay anything, you tax it at full freight. But our research suggests that a governor can't take credit for it, that the governor doesn't get the credit for bringing in the Amazons or the Costco. I mean, there's some Costco, uh, investments, uh, BMW factory, that you actually use that to take credit. So we find in a survey, we find clear evidence. We also find clear evidence. If you know a company's not coming, a great way to make sure you don't get blamed for it was to put the biggest incentive on the table. So What we would say is that there's this political strategy, whether you know if the firm is coming or not, offering incentives gets you credit if they come or reduces blame if they don't come.
0: There's a common cycle. Politicians criticize others for doing it, but then go back to the same game
1: incumbents talk about these programs, about how much these programs have generated jobs. Challengers tend to criticize these programs. And then if the challenger wins, they become advocates of these programs. And we see this pattern across states. And if there is a criticism in these programs, New Jersey just had a scathing audit of their economic development programs. The current governor's response has been, well, that's been under Christie, right? That's under his watch. But the But the programs haven't changed, right? It's still the same program there. So I, I think it's very much not a Republican Democrat. It's an incumbent strategy where it's an effective tool for governors to take credit. Quick point that's important is in many states, there is literally a governor's deal closing fund. So if we think about a clear lever the governor can pull. Right. A governor can influence legislation at the state level, but what can a government governor do on their own? They actually have these funds in a number of states, Texas being one of them, where you are the person responsible for offering offering this incentive. So it's as clear of responsibility as you can kind of imagine. There's a whole industry associated with this. There's lobbyists, trade associations, chambers of commerce, which tend to be very strong advocates for these programs. But it is striking to me that this switch from being a challenger to an incumbent um, and how often we see this across states.
0: Jensen says U.S. institutions make our pattern worse than other countries.
1: The US is pretty exceptional. The US is both exceptional on a number of dimensions, but we have some of the largest incentives and they're largely at the subnational level, meaning states, but also many cities, counties, offer a lot of incentives as well and often stacked together. So you'll get a package of, Amazon HQ2 in New York was a good example where they got a package from the state level and the city level. You move outside the United States, many of these incentives come from the central government. So there's, there are incentives, but these incentives are given by the federal government. There's not as much subnational competition. And in a lot of countries, there's a lot more regulations on the ability to offer incentives. The best example is in Europe where there's state aid rules. So European countries, you could imagine being in a competition, incentive competition with each other, but there's strong rules on when you can offer incentives and how big those incentives can be. And then there's some transparency in reporting these incentives. So the European union is a place that you could imagine looking like the U S with with countries competing against each other but there's a lot of regulation minim- minimizing this. Move to Brazil, they have very fierce competition across states similar to the United States, but there's been numerous kind of federal attempts, central government attempts clamping down, incentives. The US is one of the rare cases of the wild west uh, where there's essentially no limit at the federal level what states can offer. Because of that, I mean, we see both really large offers. We see non-transparent offers, meaning many of the states don't report what they offer. And then these mixes of anything from a cash grant to a 99-year tax abatement.
0: Even the worst programs, like film production incentives, where all the jobs are temporary, just won't go away.
1: Film incentives, they never die. They, this happens. There's a scandal. They get dismantled. Missouri's talking about redoing theirs. New Mexico's talking about uncapping theirs, making it unlimited. New Jersey just funded theirs. Texas is talking about expanding theirs. So what will often happen is they'll go away for a little bit and then they get uh, revitalized. And again, in terms of programs, it's probably the worst program. That in sports stadiums, probably the worst program. But you you see this? They're these zombies that they'll die briefly and then they uh, show back up again.
0: It is difficult to estimate the losses because a lot come from school districts.
1: Estimates are between 45 billion and 90 billion per year in terms of abatements. The complication or total incentives, the complication is these are not always at the state or city level. In particular, they seem to disproportionately harm school budgets so that these are siphoning off potential revenues from schools. But again, the short answer is we're not exactly sure the depth of the problem because we're just starting to get reporting in from school districts under a new set of rules of how many millions of dollars they're losing in terms of of tax revenues.
0: He says attempts to claw back money when deals go bad don't work either.
1: Many of these companies were coming anyways. So they're going to promise 100 jobs and they're going to really create 100 jobs. And you're going to pay out the incentive for the 100 jobs. But if they were coming anyways, right, the clawback doesn't protect you at all. Meaning the clawback only protects you if they didn't create the hundred jobs. It doesn't protect you from giving incentives to companies that were coming in ways. The other is the simple story is often these clawbacks are optional. So, and I've seen in my research here in Texas, but we've also started looking in other States that often when a company doesn't comply with what they promised, they'll go back and renegotiate with the government saying, we said this many jobs, can we change what a job is, the definition of a job? Can we change the job schedule? Can you just give us a lower number? And we see this pretty commonly. And again, why is this not surprising to us? Governors and economic developers don't want to see these companies that they gave money to fail, right? So you can imagine that it doesn't look good for anyone when they don't comply. So this is the other problem with the Clawback. Act. They're only effective if you actually enforce them. And we think there's both empirical and theoretical reasons why we think yeah these are not really going to be going
0: to be enforced. And these incentives are often funded with regressive taxes.
1: Really simple story is that one of the best ways to figure this out is we looked when the programs were built. What did they do? How did they fund them? And there's a number of programs across the country, a lot of them in Texas, but across a number of states where they're funded through sales taxes. So they have a sales tax that's enacted, half a percent, quarter percent, one percent. And that sales tax is being used to fund these incentive programs. And as you know, you know, there's nothing more regressive than a sales tax. So this is a really good example of a regressive policy.
0: That fits well with the research by Rogers, Wang and Ellis, who find incentives lead to higher inequality.
2: Basically, this story is that state governments offer incentives to try to attract business and the the goal is to increase the economic growth in in the state and so there are research questions about the effectiveness of of this practice of offering incentives what our research does is it looks at the impact of offering incentives on inequality or equality outcomes across states and our results suggest that states which offer more incentives display greater income inequality so it seems that offering incentives to businesses results in a reverse Robin Hood effect, where money is transferred
0: from poor people to rich people. There are several potential mechanisms for the relationship from sales taxes to lower spending.
2: I think there's a variety of mechanisms and it would really depend on the particular state and the state's tax and spending policy. So in a state like Oklahoma that does rely on sales taxes a lot, if you're giving away incentives that don't actually increase economic activity and, and tax in and the tax base, then the mechanism would be by higher taxes than you would otherwise need. Or maybe more representative, uh, again, of Oklahoma would be lower provision of services. So like underfunding of other services, say education or wealth,
0: welfare programs. But she acknowledges it's just one factor among many in rising inequality.
2: Our goal was to show that using incentives or the use of incentives was going to be related to the widening of inequality, that this is part of the story. So pinning down a precise effect, we have a number that we estimate in our model, but I would have no confidence that that is the number or the right number. This was a first crack at this. And basically what we're trying to say that incentives are part of this cocktail of tax and spending programs, it's really hard to pinpoint the impact of a particular tax program or incentive program from the other effects.
0: Roger says it's hard to track how big the programs are, and she's sure we miss some.
2: Measuring the value of incentives offered by state governments or local governments is very difficult. There's no centralized or uniform reporting and incentives can be paid in multiple years. Maybe they're not reported. Maybe they're tax breaks. You don't necessarily see a line item that says we spent this much on this incentive for this firm. So so that makes all the databases that claim to report these, I would say, suspect. So we used a database that was collected and that's continually being assembled by Good Jobs First. And that was one of the more novel attempts to comprehensively track incentives offered by U.S. states.
0: But it adds up to big money, blowing a big hole in state budgets.
2: Virtually every state offers some kind of incentives in one form or another. We think there's been increasing attention to offering incentives because... The value of these deals and the number of these deals are increasing. So the estimates that I've seen would range somewhere from $45 billion, that was Bartik looking at export industries, to say $80 billion, as reported in the New York Times. This, these are estimates of annual spending on EDIs by states. I would say in comparison to, if you want to put this in comparison to other state government Programs in 2018, state governments combined spent 122 billion. So we're talking big money. We're talking increasing over time. Pinning down the precise amount, I think. I think that's really hard to do.
0: Governments keep using unreliable consultants to promote projects without even evaluating them.
2: The role of private consulting companies and how they help to market these programs and incentives to policymakers. And how they help local governments convince the general public to support these sorts of things. So Haywood Sanders wrote a book in 214 that was called Convention Center Follies. And he started down this path and pointed out how some, how unreliable and really off base some of these projected benefits are that are produced by these consulting companies. So I find it astounding that governments hire consulting companies to conduct feasibility studies without assessing the quality of their previous estimate. To me, this is like drafting a baseball player based on the number of at-bats rather than his batting average. And I can't figure out why policymakers don't look at quality measures of economic predictions when they hire these companies. And why, I don't understand why the taxpayers don't demand them to justify, wow, these are good estimates or bad estimates.
0: Both Rogers and Jensen say the Amazon case largely fits the broader patterns, but might signal political change.
2: Arguably, the Amazon experience in New York City verifies what academics have been saying about economic incentives for years. Amazon's actual business decisions were driven by basic location factors. Now, staging a competition for HQ2 allowed Amazon to create this bidding war. All right, we saw all these communities that were throwing their hat in the ring. And that allowed Amazon to try to extract some extra rents. Well, the residents of New York City got angry. Amazon had to punish the area they really didn't foreclose on any activity in New York City. And they're going to, in the end, end up doing what they were going to do anyway, locate in the places that are offered the best uh, locations for their business. So I guess the short of it is the New York City example is people waking up to how this prisoner's dilemma works in these bidding competitions.
1: Amazon was very unique in the sense that they went out publicly and and had a call for proposals and 238 locations put in proposals that that is not common. That's nowhere close to common. So in a lot of communities that had no shot, right, clearly put in, put in proposals. And this is a very public ordeal that originally gave Amazon a lot of positive PR which started breaking more negative starting in January. And you can actually see in public records requests, Amazon asking cities to clamp down on the PR, don't talk about this so much. This is starting in January when they cut down to 20, 20 finalist locations. So there's a weird starting point. This is not common, but most of the rest of the story is pretty common. And that being there was a secret deal offered to Amazon. And this was across most locations, except for maybe Boston and Toronto, where they were publicly upfront about what they were offering. Um, It was not a transparent deal. Public records requests and a number of communities try to get what was being offered and they were denied in many places because there's exceptions to economic development. Again, this this is my own world when I try to get get some of these records, not just for Amazon, for any company. And then a lot of these were routed not through government agencies, but through non-public agencies like Chambers of Commerce or different public-private partnerships that are not subject to public records requests. So again, first part of your story, what's unique here? It was actually unique of how public they were up front, but what's not unique is that the actual details were behind closed doors. This was not transparent, and none of these deals are. When when you usually see these deals being announced is when the governor announces it. And this is in Texas. It's actually in their contract. The governor gets first right to announce our big program, Texas Enterprise Fund. So you, the company can't even leak out. You know that they have this incentive; they want the governor to authorize the use of talking about their program. So, so the first part, lack of transparency, common. uh, New York gave local property taxes and state incentives. That were those were existing programs, right? There is nothing unique about this. They just scaled up, right, Amazon size, but they were just offering what was there, and that's a number of states did this. They just upped the size of what they were giving anyway. So, so it's, a, it's kind of a supersized but common, you know, it's, a, it's the same ultimate, it's the same deal that's being made across many other communities.
0: But the Amazon New York blowup may provoke a need for politicians to build coalitions behind these incentives.
1: I, I do hope that there is at least some kind of lesson that, you know, what I think really happened in New York is the governor and mayor made an offer that was incredible. They made a deal with Amazon, but because they didn't bring in the broader community, they messed up, you know, and it's really on them, right? That they could not build a coalition. And the way you build a coalition isn't sign something and then try to impose it, right? It's really to bring people in. I, I spent a lot of time looking through Amazon's the proposals by different cities. Across all these different cities, I didn't see a single environmental group sign on, a single environmental group included in the discussion. Very few labor unions were included in the discussions. So I would think, at least from the mayor level or governor level, hopefully the lesson would be we need to get buy-in early if we're going to do something like this. And this means a less less kind of opaque process, not only just transparency, but actual feedback. Like, let's... Let's talk to the community before we make this offer. That is not common in economic development. As I said, these are, tend to be secret deals. But that would be my hope would be the lesson is, you know, if you're going to do this, you're going to need, need a buy-in. And, it, and it's Cuomo in particular, but also the mayor, de Blasio, who, who overstepped. They, they, again, made a promise they, they couldn't keep.
0: And Rogers says it shows the need to educate voters.
2: Educating voters about the problems with incentives can help address this this issue. New York City voters don't seem to be rewarding politicians for business incentives anymore. So maybe we can learn from that what happened. I, I think there's a role for folks that study this stuff to help educate the people about the, the evidence suggesting that these sorts of programs don't work in the way that they're touted to work. But I think academics are actually pretty bad about educating the general public, so we need to step it up and walk and, uh, in a way that folks can understand the point
0: of the message. Jensen and Rogers have both been active in speaking directly to policymakers, but Jensen says the experts are up against those with money at stake.
1: There are a whole lot of proponents. In particular, you know, I've I, testified in the Texas Senate. And I was talking about a program. I was just giving my research on an abatement program that was largely giving abatements to actually wind farms that were coming here anyways, and oil and gas pipelines and in oil and gas manufacturing. So I was presenting a left-leaning think tank and a right-leaning think tank were also testifying criticizing the program and then the whole rest of the room was a sea of you know expensive suits of lobbyists for the wind and oil and gas environmental groups were along with the you know Texas Chemical Council so you had this weird coalition and, and I think the point of this story is that most of the opposition, to these programs has no financial incentive to oppose, meaning it's unlike trade where you can imagine some groups being pro steel tariffs and other companies being anti steel tariffs because it affects their bottom line. There's no one with financial skin in the game that's kind of opposed to these programs. So most of it is good governance, folks. You see a lot on the left. You see a fair amount of kind of Tea Party or libertarian groups on the right, both saying the same thing. They don't like corporate welfare the one group that i wish that would jump in that i do think really affects is affected by this are teachers i think these programs are really costly especially the property tax abatements so teachers unions national teacher associations these are the the groups that should be most opposed and you see little bits of criticism but but i'm often kind of surprised while we see these protests teachers protests across the country that they're not linking some of their financial problems to these exact kind of economic programs.
0: Rogers has helped develop a legal proposal to address it, but she still sees increasing public knowledge as the path forward.
2: Our proposal is is that citizens of local governments should be able to sue those governments for poorly thought out economic and development incentives in the same way that shareholders can sue private firms for poorly thought out business deals. So literally, if you didn't do your due diligence like a CEO or board of directors of a private company would, that citizens could sue your local elected officials. More generally, though, is is concerns about economic development incentives are becoming more public. Residents of these incentive granting localities are becoming more savvy and they're becoming more suspicious of the usual sales pitches. So we can hope that the continued press to educate people, let them understand what's going on and and the press to actually evaluate incentives after the fact. I think that's a missing piece. A company will come in, they'll get a big incentive deal. Elected politicians, you know, put a feather in their cap and say, look what I did. And nobody ever looks back to see how it turned out. So I think the more we can look back and evaluate these things, the more we can show folks, hey, maybe this wasn't such a good thing after all.
0: But Rogers does see some positive trends in evaluation of these programs.
2: More could be done to flesh out the process, which incentives are implemented and evaluated. So the Pew Center on the States has been very active in encouraging states to actually evaluate their incentive programs and helping them to understand how to do this, giving examples of other states that have done this. And while these evaluations are far from the rigor that an academic um, paper would have, they're a great starting point. And, And the reason they're a great starting point is they put a dollar value on how much is spent on these programs. So when people are looking at state budgets, how much is spent on this, that, or the other. They get a sense of, of just the value of the amount of tax dollars that are being either given up or spent on particular programs. And that, that's a great starting
0: point. Jensen's next line of work is to find out whether transparency matters in actual decisions.
1: So one project that's just ongoing is we've done these public records requests and we found which companies challenged so that was starting an interesting point for us, but also what were they hiding? And we're finding more of this across the country where many of the companies that are making announcements about what they're offering, that it really looks like a bait and switch, that they're offering a large number of jobs and then giving much smaller amount of jobs. We're also doing some work on transparency. I'm doing some research at the city level when these cities have been forced to reveal how much in tax incentives they're giving, does that actually change behavior? Does transparency actually lead to better programs? And it really is an empirical question. We don't know. And then I'm working on another project with people looking at the city level, does focusing on these, you know, kind of whale hunting or buffalo hunting, as people sometimes call going for the big fish, does that lead to a distortion in both money and time away from small business away from workforce development. So what is the real opportunity cost of spending so much time on these these programs?
0: And Rogers is moving next to look at how special tax districts affect schools.
2: We're looking at the intersection of tax increment finance districts and school aid funding across states. So a lot of times these databases, the incentive databases don't even talk about tax increment finance districts, but in some states or in some cities say like Chicago, these are really big deals that funnel a lot of money to economic development projects. So what we're looking at is how this particular, uh, how the particular rules of how taxing jurisdictions are affected impacts the political economy parts of economic development incentives. So Oklahoma is really weird, and interesting, and unique because school districts actually can get more state aid if they participate in a TIF district than if they don't, and that sets up Really perverse incentives for districts to support economic development projects that they might not otherwise support on their own grounds.
0: There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi weekly for the Niskanen Center and on iTunes. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Nathan Jensen and Cynthia Rogers for joining me. Please check out the paper and the new book, Incentives to Pander, and then join us next time.